And focusing in on what the Bible says about eternal reality, I think is a good thing. I think it challenges our thinking. I think it uh, answers probably some questions, even some protests, uh, clears up some mythology perhaps, and today is no different. Today we're going to just try to answer the question, um, who's the devil? Who is the devil? There's a phrase that I'm sure many of us have heard that I'd like some help on. He's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. As if having a mind that's focused on eternal things or heavenly things means that you can't be any good here because somehow you're heads in the clouds or you're no, you know, no, no common good can come from that. I, I, you know what? I, I have yet to see that person. As Paul put in Colossians 3, if, you're not, if your mind is not set on things above, if your mind is set on earthly things, you're not going to be a whole lot of good here. If your mind is set on things above, where Christ is seated, then that's where your treasure is. That's where the good is. And you can be good for your world here because you are so focused on what is reality now and for the future in good ways. A person who's only focused right here, right now, what's in front of them has a very limited view of reality and isn't going to be very effective about helping their world in any kind of future sense, good or bad, probably just bad. I think people who are indifferent, maybe even apathetic about these issues of heaven and hell, maybe they're comfortable, maybe they're complacent, maybe they're just willfully ignorant about eternity. They're doing nothing about it here on earth. I think it's those who are focused on the reality of heaven and the reality of hell are doing all they can here to get people to come with them to that eternal blessing, that eternal reward, that being with Jesus. And so knowing about the enemy is going to help us, I think, give us a little sense of urgency perhaps. Being more interested that Satan might not outwit us. I love reading C.S. Lewis. You're probably going to get sick of me quoting the guy, but he's, he has this quote here. There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. There are plenty of people who don't even believe the devil exists, that he's some kind of construct that some religious person you know, made up way back when to put some kind of face to just what is evil in the world. That's one error, to disbelieve their existence. But the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them, and they themselves are equally pleased by both. If you're going to win a war, you have to have a working knowledge of the enemy. If you're going to fight a battle, you have to have good intel on where the enemy is and who they are and how they're operating. You can't win against a force you know nothing about. But you can't get so preoccupied with the enemy that you begin to sympathize with them or even are, com are complicit with their strategy. I'm convinced there are people who claim Christianity who do one or the other. They don't know a thing about him or how he works, and they don't care. Or they're so obsessed about these other realities, they get sucked into it in unhealthy ways. Here's a, a verse here, 2 Corinthians 2. 
Here's just a quick application of this. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10, Paul says, Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. What I forgive, and if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why? Why did Paul forgive? In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. According to Paul, there is a connection between unforgiveness, a bitter spirit that won't forgive another brother or sister in Christ, and the work of the devil. If you're unwilling to forgive, <laughs> did you know Christians can fight? Did you know that church people can get cranky with each other and even gossip? And we find ourselves on the opposite sides of an opinion or a decision or the devil sees a crack on the armor and he just goes straight at it. He's all too quick to make us think that other people are the problem, that you somehow are, are an obstacle to me and my, my view or my agenda or whatever. And he just loves it when we get after each other and we knock heads that way. People are not the enemy. We have an enemy. And you're not it and I'm not it. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 6, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. I'm going way ahead of myself into application onto this, but do you ever have a broken relationship with another Christian that needs reconciled, but you just see them as the problem? Do you see them as the enemy? You're playing right into the devil's plan for your life. Are you unaware of the devil's schemes? We're going to talk about new creation, but for now I think we need to briefly put our attention to study the enemy. There's a lot of misinformation and a lot of mythology out there about who the devil is. There's about a lot of mythology about angels and stuff like that. All kinds of things that our culture throws at us as fact or, or, or they even claim it's mythology and they just cartoons. I mean, there's enough cartoony figures out there about the devil. Just It's almost laughable what the enemy has done to make him appear completely two-dimensional and harmless, and then he's free to do what he wants with whomever he wants. But twice, Jesus called Satan the prince of this world. Paul called the devil the god of this age and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So as people who dwell on earth, we're behind enemy lines, so to speak. There's territory that the devil has taken and there's territory that the kingdom of God is landed right here, and Jesus brought that about, and he's advancing it through us, his people. And there is a battle going on. And it may not be visible to the eye, but Jesus said the advancement of the kingdom, that the gates of hell would not prevail, that the advancement of the gospel, the gates of hell cannot stand against that kind of attack. I always thought, for some reason as a kid, or as a younger person, I always thought that meant that, that, the, that, that hell wouldn't advance against us. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying that hell cannot withstand the advance of the kingdom of God. The gates of hell will fall down. And we're going to talk about who is this devil? What is hell? We'll get to that next week. In our culture, when we say the word Satan or devil, you might get some of these images in your head. 
I mean, some of the, some of it's kind of scary. Some of it's meant to be Hollywood kind of scary. It's some of it's meant to be just funny, pointless, cartoony stuff. Mostly a dark red being, pointed tail, horns, cloven hooves, red tights, pitchfork. Right? Where did this image come from? Is it even biblical? Surprisingly, a lot of this comes from Greek mythology and some from the book of Revelation, but we'll get to that. What about horns and hooves? How come? What is that about? One of the largest influences of the modern depiction of Satan is the Greek god Pan. And if you're a mythology fan, you know that Pan was half goat. He's known as the god of the wilderness and mischief. He also portrayed as a lustful, immoral character of the worst kind. Christians saw all pagan deities as incarnations of the devil. Pan's sinful activities, his grotesque goat-footed appearance made him a perfect symbol for this being. A pointy tail, okay? So there's this reference in Revelation about this great red dragon. His tail swept a third of the stars out of heaven and cast them to the earth. So there's this imagery of, of a tail. And also a pitchfork, or a trident, in other words. This staff was used by the Greek god of the underworld, Hades, represented his sovereignty over the dead. And since Satan is, is viewed somewhat as Lord of hell, and I put that in quotes because it's not right at all, um, he's frequently depicted with that kind of thing in his hand. So, again, Lewis says, Devils are depicted with bat's wings, good angels with bird's wings, not because anyone holds that moral deterioration would be likely to turn feathers into membrane, but because most men like birds rather than bats. Medieval art, all kinds of things. Did you know, and I've said this before, did you know there's no mention of angels or demons having wings in the Bible? None. Now, there's that part in Isaiah 6 about the seraphim who have six wings, who fly around the throne. But angelic messengers that come to earth and have messengers or have things they're supposed to say to people, they're often mistaken for humans. If I were to, get, if I were to recommend any book but the Bible, and I would recommend that first, about how to understand the work of the devil in the world, I would recommend C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. How many of you have seen or read the Screwtape Letters? Raise your hand. Okay, good, some of you. It's just written from the perspective of a demon. His name is Screwtape, Uncle Screwtape. And he's writing a series of letters to a junior-level demon named Wormwood who is being trained up in devil school to be assigned a certain person on the face of the earth that will be his, his person. And so Screwtape, in his letters, advises Wormwood about how to take this guy out, spiritually speaking. And it's great insight as to the devil's schemes. And if you were to write a letter, if you were to say, if you were to answer the question, what kind of advice would you give the devil on how to trip you up spiritually? What things would you put in your way to tempt you? What do you know your weak spots are? Have you been able to discern your blind spots? Which is hard to do. If you were to give the devil any advice as to how to ruin your life spiritually, what would you say to him? That little thought experiment is very valuable. And if you write that stuff down, you can actually make some insight as to how to shore those up spiritually and 
strengthen your faith. When you see your weaknesses, when you know your weak spots, and you can pray that God would mature you in these ways. So grab a copy of the Crusade letters and take notes. So let's ask her the question, what, is, what the devil is not? Okay, what the devil is not? One, he is not equal with God. He's not anywhere close. I, I, hate, I hate that picture where Jesus is on one side of the table and there's a devil on the other side and they're arm wrestling. I just think that's just so dumb. I'm sorry. that God didn't play chess with the devil for your soul. There's no equal yin and yang going on with the devil and God. He's not equal with God in the least. He's not... The devil is not the brother of Jesus. That's nowhere in the Bible. He's not everywhere, but his influence is universal. He's not all-powerful, but he's nothing to be trifled with. He's not all-knowing, but he's not stupid either. He's not in hell yet. And when he does get there, he won't be in charge how many of us have given, been given pictures of, of this idea that hell is a place where human souls are tormented by demons and devils? That they're somehow in charge of this operation? Not even close. Revelation 20, verse 10, verse 15. He, the devil himself, will be thrown into the lake of fire. He won't be in charge of tormenting anyone. He himself will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Hell was not meant, designed for humans. Hell was reserved for the devil and his angels. So what is the devil? The devil is a real, living, created being. Listen, when God created everything, he created everything good. He created everything like everything else. It was good when he was created. And the being that became what is now known as the devil or Satan he was made good. He was made glorious. A heavenly being, a spiritual being that became the accuser. He became the adversary. He made his debut in Genesis 3. And there's a dual layer rebellion going on here between cosmic and earthly. God didn't create the devil. I know that's a big question some of you have had to face. He created the being that became evil. And he gives his creation loving, free choice. And the Satan chose to rebel. He's been a murderer. Jesus called him a liar, the father of lies. First Peter 5 says he's a roaring lion. He looks for someone to devour. He's out for blood. He knows Scripture. Did you know that? He, he will twist Scripture. And he will abuse it and he will use it against you. If, you. if you remember, he faced Jesus in the wilderness. He would quote scripture. And every time Jesus quoted it back correctly. He is wounded, but he's not defeated entirely. Here's another thing. He's anonymous. In your Bible even, I, the, the Bible we use, devil most of the time as a small d, but Satan, have you noticed the word Satan is capitalized? For some reason, I don't know why, but in every, just about every time that Satan, the word Satan happens, it is the Satan. He is the adversary. He is 
the one in the way. That's not a proper name. It's a title. This being doesn't have a proper name. He's not given the dignity to get a name in the Bible. He's only known by what he is and what he does. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the adversary. And some of you might think, well, what about, what about Lucifer? What about that? Well, I did a little reading on that. Lucifer, the word Lucifer is never in the Hebrew Old Testament text. Can we get a little geeky about language here a minute? The word Lucifer is a transliteration. And for your English majors, transliteration is what you take an ancient language or a different language and you take that word phonetically and you make an English word out of it. In the 3rd century AD, people thought it was a good idea to put the Old and New Testaments in the Latin. And they got to Isaiah 14, verse 12, and they, talked, they saw the morning star, the son of the dawn. And they got translated into what is Latin for light bringer, luce fere, light bearer, Lucifer. And in the context, it's only... A, it is, it's about the king of Babylon. When you talk about the morning star, what do you think of? What is the morning star? It's Venus. It's the one that hangs on the longest. It's the light in the sky that hangs on above. All the stars have gone dim when the light comes up, the big light, the sun comes up, and the morning star is still shining. That one is in rebellion against the big star, and eventually it loses the battle. And the king of Babylon decided it wanted, he wanted to make himself something great. He wanted to exalt himself to the heavens. And Isaiah calls him the morning star. You're no contest to the sun. And somehow or another, this king of Babylon, who they did, they thought themselves gods. They equated themselves with with God. And somehow it's been interpreted as this spiritual being we call the devil. And we could get into all manner of other historical stuff, but that's for some other time. Let's figure out what to do about this person. How do we deal with this reality? That we have a lot to go on. And Ephesians 6 brings us some strategy. Ephesians 6 gives us some really great way to deal with this evil Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For the struggle is not against flesh and blood, against rulers. It is against authorities, against powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, verse 13, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness put in place, your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. People, we got to put our armor on. you got to get dressed 
for battle. I remember as a little kid, I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or nine years old, and I had this text as a memory verse. I, somebody thought I, I could do something in front of big church, and so my mom made this outfit out of aluminum foil and cardboard, <laughs> and I had to wear this shiny helmet with this feather on it, and I stood there trying to remember the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation. And I looked like a goofball, but I was up there in this aluminum foil outfit remembering that you can't go into battle without any armor. And every single day, we go into our, <laughs> into our living rooms, we go into our workplaces, we go into our schools, we go into the world that is It's under the dominion of the God of this age. And the one who is in charge in certain places, we go into his dominion and we fight spiritual battles. And we need to make sure we spend time preparing. You've got to have that belt of truth otherwise you can't take the, the sword. The sword fits into the sheath that's wrapped into your belt. If you don't have truth, the devil's going to tell you lies and half-truths. And if your belt isn't holding your sword, you won't be able to, to carry it with you. And that body armor of righteousness, if you don't have that on, then Satan's going to tell you all that, you're, all that you're bad at and how worthless you are. And you can say, no, I have the righteousness of God. I've been given this right standing with Jesus. And if you have feet fitted with this readiness that comes with the gospel of peace, you can be ready to go into places that are dark. And you can send this message to places that need to hear it. And you've got to have that shield of faith. You've got to have that thing up because the devil will take aim and fire at you. You are open season. And the more you engage, the more of a target you'll be. Expect it. He will ramp up his attack on you. But your faith in Christ will deflect and extinguish all those temptations, all the shame, all the accusation, and the helmet, this salvation, will guard your minds and your heart in Christ Jesus. And you'll need protection from the evil one's voice in your ear saying, God doesn't really love you. He didn't really like you. He's not going to take care of you. What are you talking about? Look at all the evil in the world. How are you going to make sense of this? And he will pick and he will pick and he will pick at you. Don't listen to those voices. When we place faith in Christ, we place our faith in Christ. Listen to what he says about you. The sword of the Spirit, this is pretty self-explanatory. This is the living word of God. And when Jesus is pictured in the book of Revelation, he is pictured with a sword coming out of his mouth. This, this word of God needs to be in our hearts, needs to be in our minds, it needs to be on our mouth and our lips and our words. It needs to come out. We have to carry it with us. And we pray and we pray and we pray on all kinds of occasions. We don't fight the devil's schemes by looking at the devil. We win by fixing our eyes on Jesus. We prevail by clothing ourselves in Christ and his armor and his attributes. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember that old comedian that said, the devil made me do it. Horse feathers. As my dad used to say. The devil can't make you do anything. 
The devil is not to be underestimated, but he's, don't give him too much credit either. He's hamstrung. He's defeated. He's been in a blinding rage for the last 2,000 years since he was publicly humiliated by Christ's death and resurrection. And Revelation 12 speaks of this dragon, this ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. John just wraps up all of these words and imagery all at once. This evil, this being is furious and he's waging war against those who keep the commandments of God. He has been at war with God's people and still is. And we are in a battle. And when you placed your faith in Christ, if you've been through the baptistry and you are, you're carrying around this promise of eternity and salvation, you signed up for war. And you can't ignore it and you can't wish it away. You're in it for good. For the good of the world around you. For the kingdom advancement. You're a soldier in the best way for Christ. I don't know what your fight is right now. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's lust or shame or bitterness or envy. Maybe it's... Uh, I don't know what it is. I don't know what your, what your fight is, but you can't defeat those things by making better promises to be a better person. You can't leverage the devil out of these places by focusing on him. You have to look to Jesus. You have to call on Jesus. You have to surrender to Jesus. You have to confess to Jesus. You have to worship Jesus. Talk to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, because God's children are humans, made in f- of flesh and blood, Jesus, the Son, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. That makes sense, right? You only die when you're a human. So he became a human so he could die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who holds the power of death. And only in this way could he set free all those who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of of dying. How many of you know, either yourself or someone, who is afraid to die? Jesus became human. He participated in death to defeat death so that those of us who are afraid to die don't have to be. If you're in Christ, there's no fear of death. None. That's Independence Day. That's Liberation Day. That's homecoming. You want homecoming. There's one right there for you. This he set us free from that fear. So what do you do? You put on the armor. And lastly, James 4, 7 says, you surrender yourselves, you submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he'll run but he'll come back. <laughs> I wish he would have said that right there. Why did he say that? Resist the devil and he will run, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. There's no defeating this enemy on our own. We need the powerful love and blood of Christ to cover us. And he offers you that. This gift of salvation is, is free This grace is a gift that can be yours. Anyone can participate.
And I would encourage anyone who is afraid of dying, anyone who is afraid that they're in the clutches of the devil, once free from it, this is your day. This could be your day. We're going to sing, and I'd invite you to either respond within this place or catch me afterwards. It doesn't have to be a public thing. We can talk in private. There's a prayer room that we can get together and just work over the scriptures and pray together. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in slavery to the evil one. You can submit yourselves to God and live. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the gift of life. That although Satan is strong and he is nothing to, uh, to be messed with, he's not the final word. We have read the end of the book and you win. And we who are with you will spend eternity with you in victory and, and in reward and life and flourishing love and hope. We hope, we, are, we have a living hope for that, for that day. But help us to be strong and prepared for the battle that is every day against the forces of evil in our own hearts. The things that, that you need to take care of that we can't anymore deal with. So God, thank you for this time together. And may your spirit do what it needs to do to draw us near to you. In your name I pray, amen.